Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Alliteration, practical perfection. What else does this episode have going for it? Find out for yourself in this episode 99. Me, 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 you, 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 we, 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 are you and me. That's right. There's no Smart and Simple Matters without you and me, and I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful for that little ditty from our kids' music together music class. I feel like I'm dropping more of those references than I am of 90s hip-hop. Those kitty songs, they are quickly crowding out some of the songs of my youth in my head. Oh, well, I like them all the same. What's always fresh inside my very bald dome is our show's patrons on Patreon. So let's give some kudos to them. Oh, ow, yeah. Sweet, (laughs) sassy, molassy. Yes, those original sound effects. (laughs) You make me happy. Also, let's hear it for and from Acadia, who has something important to say. Hi, this is Acadia McGee. Smart and Simple Matters is supported by listeners like you and me. There are many very cool and exciting ways to show your support, like iTunes reviews, word of mouth, and through patreon.com. I invite you to show your support by visiting joelsoslovsky.com slash support. Thanks in advance and enjoy the show. Now then, here is an extra dose of love to Janice, who recently left this iTunes review of the show as she wrote... This podcast weaves so many themes together to create a bright, attractive tapestry that makes simple living accessible to just about anyone. I'm warmed and inspired each time I click the play button. Janice, that's pretty rad. You and what you shared are just wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. I received that. Now, uh, about this episode itself, because it kind of made some promises in the introduction there, after listening to Kelly Exeter's podcasts and exchanging some tweets, I knew that she would be great on this show as well. And woo, we certainly got deep. We even workshopped some of our insecurities live for you, kind of like she does with Brooke McCallery on the Let It Be podcast. It's wild to hear about Kelly's total breakdown, her descent into near-death and death-defying experiences, all that stuff that led to where she is today. Oh, man. And it was really nifty. We got some verbal treats that anyone can give children, yours or others. We're also going to find out why more doing is counterproductive to moving through feeling overwhelmed, plus a definition and practice of self-compassion that anyone can love. Are you ready to have three key components of an excellent life and how to practically perfect them? That's a lot of P's. 
There are more coming. Here we go. Ha ha ha. The verbal fun is about to begin because I have a dandy, a nifty, a downright groovy guest with me right now, Kelly Exeter. She's the author of two books, Practical Perfection and Your Best Year Ever, and editor of Flying Solo, Australia's largest online community of micro-businesses, the owner of Swish Design, and co-host of two podcasts, Let It Be and Straight and Curly. She's also a mother, wife, friend, runner, blogger at A Life Less Frantic, and somebody with a lot more ands, which we may get into (laughs) soon. Kelly, welcome to the show. Hey, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we are going to start where I love to start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth, maybe even one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact? Yeah, definitely. I I think about this all the time, actually, um, because I think about the fact that I'm a very confident person and I always want to know where that came from because I'd like my kids to have that too because I think it's such an important trait. Um, And the best that I can think of is it comes from the fact that my parents, um, when we were growing up, like, you know, I'm one of those never die wondering people. um, So I I wanted to try my hand at everything and, and anything out there. And you know, my memory of my parents is that they never, I don't think I ever once heard them say, what, why would you want to do that? Or no, you can't do that. Or, you know, don't be silly as if you could do that. Like I just never, ever heard them say that. They were just like, well, yeah, if you want to give it a go, give it a go. And then, you know, and then at the other end of the scale as if I gave something a go and kind of didn't pan out, never did I hear them say, well, told you it wasn't going to work out or you know, told you you shouldn't have tried that thing. Like they just went, oh, well, didn't work out, you know, either try again or move on to the next thing. So it was just they created this very safe environment for failure for me. So they didn't try to fix things or catch me or anything like that. They were just like, yeah, you know, you tried, it didn't work out, you know, not, not the end of the world, move on. So I think that more than anything else has laid a great foundation for my adult life because I just have no fear of failure now. I have no, um, nothing holds me back from trying something out. You know, the feeling afterwards if something doesn't work out, I've tried out, I've tried so many things in my life that haven't worked out, but they, you know, they haven't left a lasting mark. It's been more of a, you know, okay, well, I can wipe that thing off the list now because I've tried it and it's, didn't work. And now I know I don't have to do that thing again. So yeah, I find that's a very powerful thing that my parents laid down for me as a kid. And I'm going to, yep. They actively cultivated that in you? For example, like maybe you were on the fourth step of the stairs and you were three and you jumped and you didn't break any bones. (laughs) Like, hey, Kelly, all right, why don't you try the fifth step now? Oh, still didn't break any bones. All right, give it a go on the sixth step. We'll see how high you can go. What was that something? Obviously, it wasn't exactly like that. But what did it what did it feel like from your perspective besides the the messaging, the verbal messaging that your parents were giving you in terms of how active they were in trying to bring that out in you? It's funny you mentioned that step analogy because I distinctly remember this one time when I was climbing on some scaffolding and mum was like, 
Kelly, you know, I'm not so sure about that. And I'm like, mum, 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 I'm fine. And she's like, well, you might fall off and break your arm. And I was like, no, I'll be fine. And then I fell off and broke my arm. So that's <laughs> probably one of those situations where she was kind of going, oh, I'm not so sure about what you're doing there. But, yeah, I don't think it was anything massively conscious on their behalf. I think they're just both people who are naturally quite confident themselves and also try, you know, they're high achieving kind of people. So, and I guess they know that you can't really, it's hard to be a high achieving person if you're not willing to just give things a go. So yeah, it wasn't anything overt in that regard. It was more like, I think I had a natural confidence anyway, and I had a natural desire to just give everything a go. And they just really nurtured that desire. They never put a ceiling on anything I was shooting for. Um, and, you know, for that reason, I, you know, I really believe everything I've achieved in my life has come out of kind of that. Well, what's another example of how your parents raised you that you'd love to see every parent in the world pass down through the generations? Ooh, Do you have anything else? Um, so Jaden, your seven-year-old, and then <laughs> Mia, who's three, when they get to 18, when they get to 30 and they reflect back and you think, you know what, that was really awesome that mom instilled this in us or gave us the permission to blank. Do you have another instance besides confidence that you would love to see every kid get from, as a gift from their parents? Um, I think the major thing I can say about my parents is that also they just, we had an, you know, I've got four brothers and sisters, um, so there's five of us. Um, we just always knew they had our back. So, you know, it didn't really matter what we did we knew that they would back us in. So even if we did, like my brothers were kind of troublemakers. I was one of those good good girls. I never did anything wrong. Um, but my brothers were a bit naughty and, you know, my parents were always very much like, okay, you've done this thing, I'm really disappointed in you. But to the outside world, like without being blindly, you know, oh, my kids are the greatest thing ever, it was more that they just went, you've done something wrong but I've I've got your back let's figure this out together. And I think that's something that makes you feel very, very safe. So, I, And that's what I just want my kids to know. I want them to know that it, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm not going to stop loving you. I love you so, so hard. I think this is – I've just finished reading a book called uh, A Little Life um, by Hanya I can't never remember her her surname, but um, just look up um a little life. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes, along with yeah. everything else we talk about. Great. So this book's quite quite a harrowing read because it shows you um the long term kind of effects of not having parents who love you unconditionally. Like I think this is something I've taken for granted my entire life that knowing that kind of no matter what, my parents love me. Um, and it sounds like my, people will kind of go, well, duh, isn't that what parents do? But I guess what this book has shown me and what other books have shown me is not, no, not everybody has this privilege in their life. And just that unconditional love sets such a huge foundation. It just makes you feel safe. And I think as a child, having that safety and that feeling of, of you know, just of love is something that stands in good stead for the rest of their life. And then the other thing is it, it then makes them be the kind of parent that gives unconditional love. So, yeah, yeah what I found about this book was how um, 
a lack of love, it, it, it kind of is a cycle that keeps going. It's very hard to break. Um, so then the person who's experienced that lack of love has trust issues as an adult and then can't love themselves as in they can't love other people and they can't love themselves. So that's something I find really upsetting and disturbing is to find out that there are people in the world who don't necessarily have what I have and that I had parents who just unconditionally loved me. So Unconditionally loved you in a way that freed you and liberated you to try and experiment and fail. And I'm just thinking about unconditional love I got that from my parents and I got it in a way that is just amazing. I'm trying to pass mm-hmm. it down to my two boys as well. But I've seen unconditional love, instead of being a safety net, being a blanket, smothering children, um, yeah. fresh with worry and fear. And we're doing this because we love you kind of messages where you know, you're holding your child back in terms of how they're developing and what kind of opportunities they have. So it's, it's weird in terms of there's probably hundreds of millions of kids who don't have unconditional love. And then there's probably hundreds of millions of kids who do, but who are getting it in a way that just smothers them and restricts them. Getting love for children right is really hard. Yeah. Is what I found. <laughs> like you can, there's a whole lot of nuance to it. And actually I, I want to, so as you, you have this safe space as a youth and you mentioned that you were kind of the good girl and you didn't get into trouble, very high achieving. <laughs> and I know that you, you used to have kind of that, ooh, look at me. Like, look, I, I just jumped from the scaffolding and look at all I've done and look at all I am. That is maybe not totally past you, but in your current less frantic mode, how did you make that transition from a very proud, very hard-charging, high-achieving person to somebody who uh, is a little bit less frantic, as you write about in your blog. Yeah, I mean, of course, it took having a total breakdown to do, you know, because you can't... I mean, I, I remember saying to my therapist, you know, I, my only, I, I'm not one for regrets, but I said to her, you know, I, I regret the fact that it took pushing myself to, you know, the absolute worst place possible before I felt justified. It wasn't that I wasn't willing. It was more that I didn't feel justified in making the changes I knew that I'd known for years that I needed to make. Um, Yeah, until I had pushed myself into such a terrible place. So, you know, I I pretty much got to the point in time where I I thought to myself, you know what, it's just going to be easier for everybody I love if I'm not in this world anymore. Um, that's that's how low I went. Um, and what got me to that place ultimately in the end, so as you say, it's that kind of overachieving type mentality. So got to, you know, as an adult, I, I started a business um, and that business was going really well and then I had a child and then I wanted to be the greatest mum ever to him. I mean, the business was going well, but it was also always running on, you know, the line between black and red. It was, you know, it was just breaking even every month. And of course, I was trying to be the most perfect person to my clients, the perfect boss to my staff, the perfect wife, the perfect mum, the perfect homemakers. You know, obviously I'm managing a household as well. We were also building a house at the time. Um, so there's all these things going on. And um, of course, when you're trying to be perfect at everything in your life, it's just, you know, it's kind of not possible. Um, and then you just start to see all the areas 
that you're not hitting that mark and and so you try harder and harder to hit that mark and it just becomes this never-ending cycle and so I kind of for a good two years you know was permanently overwhelmed and drowning in life and still trying to present this facade to the world that kind of matched you know what I thought my personal brand was which was someone who's got it together you know even so I knew that I was not in a great place and I kind of felt like I was doing things to not to kind of come away from there but I wasn't really I was just I just found that when I was under pressure I just reverted to type and and my type (laughs) my reverting to type was the more under pressure you are the more you do because it's in the doing that, you know, right. that was my coping mechanism was to do more. So I'm overwhelmed. Time to throw more gasoline on the fire. Absolutely. And, it was, you know, I, and know, I look I back now, that. I look back and I go, my God, like you're an idiot. Like I can't believe you did that. But at the time it was all I knew that it, that's, you know, and I think also because I was struggling and I find this is a lot um, – with people that I write for now is that when we're struggling, we're looking for the answer and we're sure that there is the answer out there. And that's why we don't want to say no to anything because just in case that thing might be the answer, the ticket out of this place that we've created for ourselves that we know is not great, but we don't really know how to get out of there. So I think that's why, you know, the the worse I got, the more I said yes to everything because that might be the way out and then in the end you know and then of course unsurprisingly you end up having a complete and total breakdown and you kind of have to start not for start from scratch but kind of start from scratch again yeah i i understand that to some extent at least so you you reach your breaking point and i know you wrote on your website that going to see a therapist was one of the hardest things that you've ever done What's what's changed maybe since therapy or since you got mixed up with Soul Living Champions like our mutual friend Brooke McGallery? <laughs> I mean, you've shifted into uh, a slower, more authentic, more intentional kind of lifestyle. Can you give me just a brief juxtaposition between old you and current you? What are a couple of the core things that are just fundamentally different about you now? Um, I have more... I've deliberately created more space in my life. I'm much, much, much better at assessing opportunities and I've got air quotes around opportunities. Um, uh, yeah, so like I said, I never used to say it, no opportunity could could go past me because I just couldn't, the FOMO of it, I, I couldn't bear the thought of it. So um, I think probably more than anything else these days, I'm much, much better at assessing opportunities and letting the vast, vast majority of them go. Um, knowing- How do you do that? How, how do you, what kind of mental calculus are you doing? Like, let's say I came to you and I said, Kelly, we're both podcasters and we both enjoy each other's company. Let's start a podcast together because I know you need another one. You have two and, of course, you need a third podcast. And it's going to be about this and it's going to be about that. It'll be so amazing. Huh? Huh? What do you think? Like, What is your mental calculation going if I were to present you an opportunity like that? Okay. So I think the, yeah, okay. the biggest thing that I did when I was trying to get better is I got really, really clear about what I wanted to be doing with my days. Um, it's funny. Um, 
I have to, I'll get, give you the link to this if it still exists. Um, Penelope Trunk, this guy, Steve, interviewed Penelope Trunk on his podcast once. And, um, and this is kind of like right when I was kind of in the recovery mode. And she interviewed him and he was like, um, you know, he, he, she, he asked her, oh, what advice do you have for people like me who kind of hate their life and they're looking to get freedom? You know, they want the passive income dream. And she was like, well, okay, so you have this job that you hate. Um, what's it going to cost? You know, how much do you need to make to to have freedom from that job? And he was like, uh, 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 I don't know. And then she just kept asking him question after question. And it turned out that he had this dream, this freedom dream, but he had absolutely no idea what freedom looked like. He had no idea what he wanted his days to look like, what he wanted to be doing with his days. Because she was basically like, look, you know, we all have to work. We all have to spend our days doing something. What do you want to spend your day doing? And he couldn't answer it. And when I was listening to this podcast, I was like, oh, my God, I am him. I have no idea what I want to spend my days doing. Um, so that was really, that was an epiphany moment for me. And I went away and I had a really, really good think about it. And um, I've mentioned to you before that I'm a hardcore introvert, like real down the um, opposite end of the scale to you. And I desperately, desperately need time by myself alone. And and I, I actually, I didn't know then, but I know now, like I, five hours alone at home working for me is not quite enough for me to recharge. I need like seven to nine hours, which just seems absurd, but that's that's the reality of it's it. It's not absurd. You know yourself. You <laughs> self-awareness and it's wonderful when you can tell the world, hey, you know what? I got to seven and a half hours, just need a little bit more and everything's going to be wonderful for me and for you. So I think that's great. It, it doesn't I'm sure some people are being like, wow, you need a whole day to recharge after interacting with somebody like me, which <laughs> you probably do. Unfortunately, you're recording early in your morning, so you have all day to recover I'll get from that time. Like, I, and that's why at the moment with my son's on school holidays and I'm, I'm just a little bit at sea because I'm just not getting any alone time. Like I get quiet time, but no alone time. So yes, yeah, so There's I, a difference. Okay, definitely. So I realize that, you know, so I had previously been working in an office where it was a very big open plan office. I was managing staff. I was doing a lot of one-on-one time with clients and staff. Um, and I'm wondering why I was getting to the end of the day completely exhausted and just not wanting to talk to anybody at home. And when I switched that around, so when I switched to working from home, so my husband and son would go off in the morning at like, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock, and they'd come home in the, in the afternoon about 4.35 and I would just be almost off my face with happiness at this amount of time that I had just gotten to myself. So, yeah, so I realised that what do I want my days to look like? Like I need to, it's not like I don't like people, I love talking to people, but I need to structure my days and my weeks to allow for this hardcore alone time that I need to fully recharge and regenerate and, and have good energy. Um, I realized I really just, I just want to write and design. A lot of um, people kept trying to get me to consult to them because um, they're like, oh, you're really good at it. You're good at empathizing with people. You're good at understanding what they want and what they need and giving them what they want and need. And so I kept kind of getting pulled into this consulting 
kind of line of work and then I kind of realised that it doesn't matter if I'm good at that stuff, like it is completely, completely exhausting for me. So, you know, I'd finish having a one-hour meeting with someone and I would just slump on the desk, completely spent. So um, I kind of realised that's not the line of work that I, I just have to say no to opportunities like that. Like I'd much rather, I like speaking. I love speaking to a room of 100, 200 people, no dramas because there's not that heavy one-on-one react, interaction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anything um, anything heavily one-on-one, I have pretty much eliminated from my life now. Um, and yeah, so I just kind of went, right, what do I want my days to look like? For the most part, I want to spend them at my, I like being at my computer, either writing or designing I don't like this other, you know, one-on-one consulting stuff, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, And then the other thing I I know that I want in my days is I need a lot of white space um, and white space is what I call it's time where I'm able to move slowly, what I call kind of meandering. Um, I need time in my day to meander because, again, like my previous life, every minute of my day was scheduled literally every day I would wake up in the morning and go 7 o'clock to 7.15 would be this, 7.15, like that. And as anyone who has that kind of life knows, it doesn't take much at all for a day like that to get derailed. You only need to have an unexpected phone call or have to answer an email that's a bit, you know, spend 20 minutes answering an email that should have taken one minute to know know that that... I've yep. noticed when you're overscheduling yourself, I've done this before, I've gotten to the point where I've scheduled blocks of time in five-minute increments. <laughs> That's when I knew that something was wrong. So these days, I schedule everything in 15-minute increments or greater. And there is, when I look at my Google Calendar, like there's intentional white space. Some people would call it creating margin in your day. Yeah. To do nothing, to allow for something crazy to happen and be able to react to it without totally freaking out. So this concept of white space, this design element, which doesn't surprise you. I mean, you are a designer and you're great yeah. at it. Um, that can be applied throughout your entire life. And it sounds like you are starting to do that more and more. Oh, definitely. I mean, that, pro- that concept probably more than anything else has made, my, has made me a better person, <laughs> has made me a nicer person to be around because before, you know, when every minute was scheduled, if someone derailed my day, I was, I'd just be so angry and I'd be so angry at them but I'd just be angry so everyone who was close to me and around me would just be tiptoeing around me because they're like, oh, she's really on edge, we, won't, we don't want to bother her, we don't want to upset her even more and I just think there's nothing worse than the people you love having to tiptoe around you because you're so on edge all the time. So, yeah, I kind of looked at the person I was being and, and I went, this is this is not who I aspire to be. Um, you know, I want to be a nice person. I want to be more present. Um, I'm not very good at being present. I'm As a writer, I really like spending time in my head um, as an introvert and a writer. Um, so, you know, anything that, just frees me up a little bit to get out of my head and just be a bit more in the moment, especially for my kids, yeah. is going to be a good thing. So, yeah, it's, I'm it trying to like, if I answered your question or well, not. Well, no, it, it sounds like you want to be the kind of person that you want to surround yourself with. So you mentioned yes. <laughs> in your a manifesto for a simple life, one of the things you mentioned, the best way to stress less is to surround yourself with people who make you laugh or smile. Exactly. I found that 
universally true. And sometimes we need to be that person. We need to be the person providing that for others, laughing and smiling and being lighthearted. That's not to say that life is all sunshine, lollipops and rainbows. A lot of it's not. But being able to bring that lightness to life, you can do that in so many ways. And it's such a gift to have that and to be around it. So besides that, besides being that person who's laughing or smiling or surrounding yourself with those kinds of person, what are the other, other feelings that you feel like you want to experience the most when you are intentionally deciding how you show up in the world? So I remember you saying on a, a podcast, I can't remember who it was for, but um, that your idea of success is being having time and space to be able to look out for others. I, I've paraphrased that probably badly, but... You're quoting um, me pretty good. We're going to talk about yeah. quotes, by the way. I You love quotes. I, well, I know love quotes. you are curated. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about whether you got a nice spreadsheet hiding oh. behind that computer. Okay, <laughs> continue. Okay, so yes. Um, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so to me, that's... That's the person I ultimately aspire to be. Um, I want to have time and space in my life to not just be, you know, not just achieve my own hopes and dreams and not just, you know, tick all my own little boxes and not just be good to fight my family. Like I want to be able to look beyond my immediate circle of people and see if there's and be able to reach out and help people who need it you know, beyond that immediate sphere. And I know that when I'm kind of where I want to be, I do have that ability to see like, you know, someone's struggling a little bit. I can tell they're struggling a little bit by something they've written on Facebook and to be able to send them a quick message to say, hey, you know, how are you going? Just letting you know I'm thinking of you. I think that's a real you know, it sounds like something, well, don't we all have time to do that? Well, the fact is we kind of don't because I know when I'm emotionally struggling, I don't have the capacity to reach out to other people because I can't, because to me that's kind of then opening yourself up to take on a bit of their emotional um, space as well. And if you're struggling, you you can't add other people's emotions into yours. It, it, it's too overwhelming. So, yeah, that's the ultimately, that's the ultimate for me to have that time and space to, yes, achieve my own goals and dreams and tick the boxes that I want to tick because I do have many boxes. I, I, I like ticking boxes. <laughs> um, I do want to be a great mum and a great wife um, and a great friend, but I do also want to just be able to look after the world in, you know, not the whole world, but I want to be able to operate outside of my own immediate sphere and impact people outside of that sphere in a positive way as well. And I know right. I'm hitting it when, when I'm able to reach out, work outside my own immediate sphere. I know that's kind of I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm where I want to be right now. That's groovy. Well, I know you have said before, you've written before somewhere that you're trying more to feel your feelings. And you just <laughs> yeah. mentioned that when you are feeling your feelings, it's harder for you to be generous, to be compassionate to others. So where's that line? I know you're big on self-compassion and that's becoming a bigger element and presence in your life. So as we feel our feelings and we just sit with them and accept them and maybe just cry or laugh (laughs) hysterically about how ridiculous the thoughts are in our heads, 
which I do from time to time. How's that whole feeling your feelings thing working out for you? Yeah, it's really hard. This is something my friend Brooke McCallery, who I have the podcast Let It Be With, has kind of like, this is her thing. She's big on feeling your feelings, where I'm big on putting feelings in a little box in my head and going, look, you just go sit over there and um, I'm just not going to deal with you. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of, Brooke and I were talking about this the other day, actually, and I think it's because um, my parents are quite stoic people. So they're not, um, so they're kind of like, yeah, as I mentioned before, you know, if you have a failure, you move on. So they're kind of like that with everything, you know, it's just, that's, you know, you're feeling that way. Okay. Got to, you know, move on. (laughs) And so I have that, yeah, that's how I kind of deal with feelings. I kind of try to rationalize them away almost. Like I'm like, okay, you're feeling really, um, feeling really sad right now. Okay. Let you you know, is that sadness, um, justified and, should you be feeling that sadness or you're feeling really depressed right now? Is that, you know, look at these other people in the world who have less than what you do. You shouldn't be feeling that's, you know, I kind of try to rationalise it in that way in that, you know, oh, look, Kelly, there's worse people off in the world, you know, than you, you should move on. Um, And so Brooks kind of brought this whole feel the feelings thing into my life and it's something I've only been doing for like, a few weeks and it's really confronting. Um, I've been doing a lot of journaling to try and, you know, so I, I kind of like go, right, this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, and I start, I just start writing and it's, it's really interesting what gets thrown up. So say right now I'm feeling very, very stressed about money, which is something I haven't had to really think about for a few years. But, you know, we you know, a few things happened in our business last year and it's coinciding with building another house. And so money is not as certain a thing as it was and I don't like uncertainty. Um, and so I started kind of, I was like, all right, let's 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 deal with this feeling rather than going, you know, look, Kelly, there's money, there's always going to be money and you've got choices and just stop stressing about it. So I was like, okay, I'm, I am still stressing about it regardless. So let's journal this out. And I wrote it out and it was really interesting what it turned up. And it turned up this that I've got this real scarcity complex with money that unless there's a lot of it, uh, I feel it's scarce. Um, and this comes from growing up where money was always scarce growing up. Mm. Um, so now, yeah, I feel now as an adult that even when – Probably nobody would look at my money situation and think there's any kind of scarcity involved in there, but my brain thinks there is. So it was just an interesting thing because ordinarily I would just put it in a box and and then it would bubble over sometime in the future and take me down in a big way. But now I'm kind of looking at it with, right, I have got this scarcity complex. That's something I can do something about as opposed to, you know, constantly freaking out about this perceived uncertainty I've got in my life. So... There you go. Yeah. You just hit it. That's something yeah. that you can do something about as opposed to just wallowing in it or accepting that this is always the way that it's going to be. That we're kind of, we're doing almost 
what you and Brooke do in, in the podcast, <laughs> Let It Be, which I love. I, I listen every single week. You too. And yeah, I think you mentioned it, like workshopping your insecurities yeah. in real time it on podcast episodes. It often turns into a counseling session. <laughs> Whichever one of us is better across a topic kind of counsels the other person. It's really funny when that happens. <laughs> oh, I've used, the, I've used previous episodes too where like Luna Jaffe in episode 49, I think it was, we were talking about money actually. And I was talking about my money avoidance issues, which I still have. Uh, I mean, I have tons of money and I see the world as an abundant place. Therefore, I don't need to pursue money and I and I actively avoid it. And I still do to some extent, too. Uh, We don't have to go into all of our securities here, but sometimes these kinds of conversations and if people are listening right now and they're thinking, well, that's great, Joel. That's great, Kelly. I don't have a podcast to workshop my insecurities (laughs) in real time. I don't have somebody who I can do this even privately with, let alone publicly. There's always an opportunity, even if you want to get your internal story straight, that thing that you keep telling yourself over and over as if it's the truth, you know, believing everything that your brain or your mind is telling you is true without stopping to challenge yourself and, and ask, like you've done, like, is this legitimate? Should, should I be feeling this right now? Is this even true? Sometimes that's the first step uh, of figuring out how our story plays forward. Do you have any other topics or insecurities that you and I might workshop in real time right now? <laughs> Feeling game, Kelly? I'm trying to think. <laughs> Generally not an insecure person, but yeah, I do have this weird thing. I certainly definitely have this weird scarcity thing with money where it freaks me. It's the only thing other than health, as long as my health is under control. Um, and this is something I was thinking, this is a way I was trying to rationalize my my money and I'm air-quoting problems because I don't really have problems, but I think I do. Um, but, you know, I was thinking the other day, well, Kelly, you've got your health and, how you know, health is wealth and so important to you and, and you know, and then and then perspective comes into it because, and I was saying to Brooke the other day how much I hate perspective because I hate the fact that sometimes I need perspective to feel better about my own situation. I feel like I should be able to feel better about my own situation without hearing something bad has happened to somebody else. Uh, okay, now I get it. Um, I, I, I perspective. I lo- that just kind of, you're like, that, that's weird. I actually, I ran into a woman when I was walking my dog earlier in the day today and I thought we were lying. I'm like, oh, you sound like a little bit of a minimalist like me. She's like, nope, nope, I love my clutter. And she <laughs> said that, I'm like, oh, that's a strange thing to hear. That's Sorry, really to- weird. Totally tangent here. But, yeah, needing perspective. Can we talk about that a little bit, actually? The perspective? Has anything changed for you? This was just weeks ago as we recorded. Like, you were resigning yourself to dying. You were seeing the imminent <laughs> death happen right in front of you. Well, first of all, tell that story briefly, if you would, please. And has anything changed since your seemingly near-death experience? Uh, yeah. So, we were, we were flying. It was actually... I only just told, um, I think, the short story of it. This is quite a long story. Um, we, My husband, Anthony, and I, we were flying back from the Philippines. We'd been in a conference and it was kind of like this three-flight trip home. And um, I, I got on the plane. I wasn't feeling fantastic. Um, but, you know, I was just like, we've gone home to our babies, um, you know, and I'm just not feeling that well. So, And I, I, I fell asleep on the plane. It was only a very short flight. The first the first stage was just a quick flight up to um, Davao in the Philippines where we would have to get off the plane and then get straight back on and then fly over to Singapore and then from Singapore down to Perth where I live. 
Um, and so we got to the end of that first flight and I had fallen asleep as soon as we, we got on the plane, which is very unusual for me. And I kind of came to and then I was like, ooh, I do not feel very well. Um, and I started kind of rummaging in the seat at the front for um, one of those spew bags. And then apparently while I was down there rummaging, I, I just passed out. So my poor husband, he's just kind of patting my back while I rummage for um, a, a spew bag and then I just go limp. And he's kind of pushed me back up to a seating position and I wasn't responding and et cetera, et cetera. And so he, he thought I had died. So that was a bad moment for him. Wow. Um, it, it turned out it was, it was this uh, a thing that happens to me quite often when I have gastric issues. I just pass out. It's, it's good times. It's happened about seven or eight times in my life. So I spent that whole the whole stopover in the toilet while they were trying to kick us off the plane. And I was like, no, 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 this, you know, I'm fine. I just need to go to the toilet. And once they come out, I'll be fine. So, you know, they begrudgingly let us stay on. Um, and as, so, you know, the next trip was over to Singapore. And as we were coming into Singapore, so I'd never in my entire life ex- experienced aborted landing before. And then we just, we had an aborted landing into Singapore. And Aunt and I just like looking at each other going, Maybe we should have gotten off the plane <laughs> in Davao. Um, but anyway, we landed in Singapore fine, got on the flight home to Perth, just thinking, I'd, you know, so happy to be getting home, seeing our kids. We hadn't seen them for like nine days, which is a really long time for us. Um, flying into Perth, always a little bit dodgy. We have this really strong wind that comes off the scarp, so it's always a bit of a bumpy landing. So the flight, you know, so we're coming into land and the plane is all over the place. And I'm like, wow, okay, well, I've never quite experienced that level of all over the place before. And just as the pilot's about to land, he's pulled up and he's aborted it. And then mm. we're just gone, right, never experienced aborted landing before. And now we've just had two in like two flights. What are the odds? Right. Um, <laughs> and then we go around again for the second attempt coming in, still pretty bumpy, but we're pretty low now. Like I can see the tops of trees. So I'm like, right, it's bumpy. It's we're all over the place, but we're going to, we're landing this one. And then he's pulled up again. And that was the point where I was just like, wow, um, okay, we're going to die because this guy cannot land this plane. And it was the most interesting feeling because I just, in that, in that moment, because I'm, I'm a control freak, um, so I, I like to stack the odds in my favour, so I fly with good airlines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I was like, well, you've done everything you can to get home safely. Your life is now completely in this pilot's hands and this pilot cannot land this plane. You know, he's just not going to be able to do it. And clearly we don't have fuel to go to another airport because otherwise that's what he would be doing. Um, and I was saying to Brooke that this feeling of calm settled over me because I was like, well, you have zero control over this situation. Um, say la vie. We, we're going to die here. I'm sad because my kids are going to lose both their parents, but what can we do? Um, so, you know, obviously long story short, we landed the third time, which could not believe. Um, but yeah, it was funny because for perspective wise, that lasted for about two days where I went, when you think you're going to die, everything, nothing bothers you <laughs> um, for, but, you know, it only lasted for two days and then things started bothering me again. And, uh, yeah, it just annoys me that 
that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't need to nearly die for things to not bother us as much as they should. And we shouldn't have to hear that, you know, a close friend has got cancer right. to, you know, to feel, to feel like that. So that's why I hate perspective. I just, I want to be able to be grateful and have that gratitude override all the other kind of, you know, the crappy things that happen and the challenges that life throw up. I, I wish that my just natural gratitude for those things would override the irritation or the anxiousness or the uns- that I feel over uncertainty, but it, it doesn't. You know what's interesting? Well, there's a lot of things that are interesting about that. <laughs> wow. First of all, wow. <laughs> oh, what so an bad. experience. <laughs> a chain of experiences. But as you're talking about this and as you're summing it up at the end, I'm thinking of the same thought that people think of me like, you know, Kelly you're being pretty hard on yourself right here. Like give yourself a little bit of love, give yourself a little bit of slack here. And I know because this is one of the things that uh, I don't like the most about me is that I am really hard on myself. I am really compassionate with other people. I'm really gentle with other folks, but geez, the things I tell myself in my head, I was just talking with my buddy Sal, who was over here for lunch earlier today. and, And we were, this is a common theme for me is I'm just, I'm too hard on myself. And I want to talk just for a moment. You've got this book that you just published, Practical Perfection. <laughs> yep. And the on irony, a life lesson. The irony. Yeah. <laughs> well, we write and teach the things that we need the most sometimes. Yep. And you say that uh, to nod your head if you've been told that you're too hard on yourself. And here I am. I'm nodding my head. I'm like, yep, Zeslowski, Crimini, like, stop saying things to yourself that you never say to somebody else. Yes. So for <laughs> folks like you and me, people who are nodding their head when they read the statement, you're too hard on yourself. How would us and folks who are like us and listening, how would they benefit from your book? So I think it was interesting because when I first started writing the book, um, it was really just to share the framework that I I kind of now live my life by. So, you know, I'm, as I said to you, I'm I'm a highly driven, achievement-oriented person. I like ticking boxes. But I also like being a good person and quite often being that highly driven, achievement-oriented person means you get you tend to be very single-minded about what you're doing to the exclusion of everything else. So I've finally found this place in my life where I'm able to go after those things that are important to me and tick those boxes but I think still be also a good person to the people around me. Um, so, yeah, so I started writing this book with, the intention that I would help other people like me get to that place. And it was really interesting that what kind of came out at the end of the writing of the book was that because people kept saying to me, um, you know, my beta readers kept saying, you know, don't forget to include self-compassion in there because self-compassion is a key component of, you know, being able to live the life that you want. And what I actually found in the end was that what that framework I share in the book does is it actually allows me to be more compassionate to myself. And it's interesting, this concept of self-compassion, it's, it, I think people see it as quite a bit of a woo type, type of term. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, self-compassion, what even is that? But And obviously all that it is is, you know, the kindness that we extend to others, to our friends, and the things that we say to them when they're struggling is self-compassion is the ability to extend that same kindness to yourself and as you say so us people who do tend to be very hard on ourselves so we we hold ourselves to high standards and we get a bit frustrated when we 
don't meet those standards that we've set. Um, what I'm hoping is the framework in this book just provides a way, it takes away that that bad self-talk. And I give the um, example in the book that one of the chapters in the book is about overwhelm. And while I was writing the book, I got into quite a big state of overwhelm. And my first immediate reaction was to go, oh my God, Kelly, you were writing a book that's about overwhelm and you're overwhelmed. Like, seriously, what is going on there? Like, you're such an idiot. Um, and then I went, hang on a minute. No, let's just, and I just went back to the framework of the book. So it shares a few formulas. And what the book points out is that when you're in overwhelm, you're, you're missing priorities. You've lost um, control of what your true priorities are in life. And so, um, so the book actually, it shares kind of th- the three key components of, of what I call an excellent life and that's passions, priorities and productivity. And when you've got those three things happening, you exist in this central zone called what I call practical perfection. Oh boy, when- the alliteration. Jeez, the Venn so diagram good. and the alliteration is fantastic. I have I love this those mental peas. picture. Yes, peas are good unless you're popping them on a podcast. Uh, yeah, don't don't pop the peas. No, um, no, no. But you. yeah, so when you fall into overwhelm, what that means is you've kind of drifted out of that central zone of practical perfection, and you've drifted into overwhelm. And what the um, what the Venn diagram shows you is that right, if you want to get out of overwhelm and back into that central zone. You just need to activate priorities. And so that's what I kind of love about the, um, the framework um, is that it doesn't judge me. You know, it doesn't go, oh my God, you're such an idiot. I can't believe you've gotten here again. It just goes, right, you're in overwhelm. All right, Kelly, you know what to do. Just activate priorities. Or, okay, well, like you're feeling like a bit of a hamster on the wheel. Okay, what you need to do is look at your productivity and engage that again. And that's what I think is helped me a lot with self-compassion. Instead of me talking to myself and saying I'm such an idiot, I just go, right, I'm here in this place. I've slipped out of that ideal central zone. What do I need to do to get back to the central zone? This thing, okay, I'm just going to do that thing. So that's, I think that's my favorite thing about it. Right on. Well, wow. We, I was hoping to come back to a couple of items that we talked about. Maybe we'll save it for another one. I really want to know. I'm sure you've got tons of quotes in the book. I haven't read it yet, but just you are a quote queen. I want to know where they come from, how you store them, how you conjure them up in your mind for another time. For yes. now, is there anything we did not talk about that you would like people to know? No, I think we kind of covered everything off. I mean, the, the, the concept of white space is something we've we only briefly touched on. Um, and I love, yeah, I think more than anything else, if people have the opportunity and, you know, anyone that's listening to this podcast is, you know, is already going to be sold on the idea. But I really think that if we make time to meander in our days, if we create, you know, so I've heard like people call it margin, um, Brooke calls it margin. I heard, um, I think it was Greg McEwan, um, author of Essentialism. Is it Greg or? Yeah, Greg McEwan. Greg author, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he mentions um, that concept of having like, it's like that space between cars when you're traveling along. It's that buffers. ability. Buffers. That's the word he used. Yeah. That, that, that ability to, to not be reactive so much, to have time and space to um, be more proactive to plan to, you know, you can't, when you leave a big buffer between you and the car in front, you're making an allowance for something weird to happen. And you're meaning that, you know, you're making sure you don't have to be reactive all the time. So 
I love the concept of white space because it really does allow us to be the people that we want to be. Um, yeah, and I probably don't have time to go really deep into it now, but there's yeah, certainly things on my blog where I talk about it in, in a lot of depth. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, we've got time and space now because people have listened to almost 100 episodes of this show. And they've created a lot of space margin buffers where they can now go explore more of your world online. And where would you like them to go to find more from you? Cool. Um, if they go to kellyexeter.com.au, so that's my website. Um, hopefully by the time this episode airs, I'll have a nice new website up. Um, but yeah, everything everything is there. My podcasts are there. My blog posts are there. My books are there. Um, certainly come and say hi on Twitter and Instagram, which is at Kelly Exeter. And I, um, I also engage quite a lot on Facebook, which is um, a life less frantic on Facebook. All right. Well, Kelly, thanks a ton for joining me on the show. You were talking and I, there are certain points that are just like, I just want to give you a big old hug. Or a massive <laughs> high five to celebrate you, to celebrate us. But Perth, where you live, it is literally the farthest city it in is. the entire world from where I live. And after you talking about your harrowing descent and aborted uh, attempts to <laughs> land in Perth, I don't know that I'm going to be where you are anytime soon. But I guess that's just another reason why the internet is so grand, huh? It is, yeah. I do love talking to people from Perth and knowing the fact that I couldn't possibly, unless I was in Antarctica, get further away from where they are. It's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this is wonderful. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Joel. All right. Now you have some additional tools, perhaps even a new perspective to feel your feelings. Stop beating yourself up so much. Gracefully move through overwhelm. And experience a conversation with me after I've taken way too many silly pills. I was above average goofy, I have to say. Now, please go show Kelly some love for her deep stories. All those resources she's offering up to us at a page specific to you, to Smart and Simple Matters listeners. You'll find that at kellyexeter.com.au slash S-A-S-M. What are you going to find there? Well, a whole lot of grooviness with a side of Kelly's trademark snark. I love it. Now, you can find all the links that we just spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, more niftiness in the show notes. Those are at joelzeslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-099. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, well, please do. If you're not already an email newsletter getter, dude or dudette, also, please do. If you want to leave a brief iTunes review, whatever you feel like doing right now, you're going to find links to all that jazz at joelzeslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-099. Lastly, well, I guess there is no lastly. Really, it's, it's peace out time for me, which means you've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.